On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. We're in Luke chapter 6, going through verses 1 through 11. And we've been looking at the Gospel of of Luke for a few months now, and in the last few weeks we see this recurring occurrence uh, amongst the Pharisees and the scribes. So let's let's just take a look at this to keep track of of these guys here. Starting in chapter 5, verse 21, where the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the religious leaders of the day were, were really upset at Jesus and the things he was saying and doing. And you follow them along and you hit the verse 30 in chapter 5 and we read about the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling at Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then you jump over to verse 33 and we find them challenging Jesus and, and saying, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eats and drinks. We find that the Pharisees are really consistent in this kind of negative outlook on Jesus and his followers, where we find in chapter 6, verse 2, and the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So you just see this recurring thing, just like a nagging parent or something. And in verse uh, 7 of chapter 6, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And then in verse 11 of chapter 6, Luke records for us that they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is pretty rotten, isn't it? You just followed all along, being nitpicked of all these things. Now, why were the religious leadership of the time so upset at Jesus? Well, it interrupted them. Right? It interrupted their establishment. It was a very well-established religion full of legalism, full of traditions that were added to what was given by God. They were added to that. And they made this kind of lifeless orthodoxy. And you contrast that with Jesus, who brought joy in knowing God, who, who brought a liberating sense of what freedom in God uh, truly was, who gave significant meaning as to the, the realities of God who injected this authentic vitality in the worship of God. And Jesus really ticked them off. He, he really ticked off this established religious community. And he didn't hold back many punches, right? He, he was pretty tough on them. And he, he, he gave these overtly religious people some, some serious reprimands, right? Because 
what was supposed to be happening on the outside as God's children wasn't consistent with what was happening on the inside of their hearts. Now Jesus, who was full of grace, he was full of compassion, full of forgiveness to those who were repentant, who were humble, who acknowledged that they needed him. But this was so far from those religious folk. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 3, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. You see that the Pharisees were good at telling people what to do and weighing them down with all these extra scriptural practices. Jesus goes on to give the scribes and the Pharisees this verbal beat down in the chapter telling them, Woe to you, hypocrites! And he has that list of woes there, right? And he gives all these reasons that they're hypocrites. And one of these woes is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that outside also may be clean. And this is Jesus. Right, whom, whom many take simply as this, this nice guy. Right, oh, Jesus doesn't say mean things. He's always nice and all this. But he's pretty tough on these guys, right? But at times, he, he's pretty rough. But he, he was kind to, to many sinners, right? Tax collectors, prostitutes, adulterers. But he's not so kind with religious hypocrites. Right? And, and that escalated the conflict even more between the religious community and Jesus. So much so that Jesus didn't receive a fair trial. And he gets sentenced to the cross. And the conflict we'll be talking about this morning surrounds the Sabbath. And before we get into our text, let's get some background information on the Sabbath. And we're going to start all the way back in Genesis. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now turn to me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God originally established the Sabbath as this ordinance revolving around creation, but after the fall of Adam, after sin entered the world, in Exodus it became a moral law. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, it reiterates what we just read in Exodus, except for verse 15. So let's just take a look at verse 15 there. Exodus chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So we have the remembrance of the completion of God's creation, God's work in creation in Genesis, and we have the remembrance of God's work in redemption in Deuteronomy when the Jews were set free from Egypt as they were held in bondage and captivity there. And not only will creation be remembered, but also the redemption from bondage. So we have those two things to remember. 
Now let's look at another scripture for background information. It's in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 through 14. If you turn your back, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we have some background scriptures to the Sabbath. Now what does Sabbath mean? It means rest. It means cessation from work. Now why did God take six days to create everything? Because he really didn't need six days, right? It's not like, oh, that was so laborious. I need to need it. I need another day. I can't finish this work. I need another day. It's not like God did that, right? He could have done all of this instantaneously. Why did he choose six? He could have just done it, right? And why did he rest on the seventh day? It's not like God gets tired. He doesn't have lactic acid buildup or anything like that. He doesn't have that sort of stuff, right? So it's not possible for him to get tired, so why rest? And we're told that God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done, but that doesn't mean that he rested because he was worn out or that he was tired. Right? What was God doing? God was establishing a cycle. He was establishing a pattern which included six days of work and one day of rest. So this cycle, this cycle was established in the beginning of time for the time frame for us to live in accordance Starting with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, it started as that, and it started as a creation ordinance, and then it became a commandment after the fall. So it became this moral law after the fall. Now the other gospel accounts have some other information that's not included in Luke's. For example, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Mark wrote, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now what was Jesus saying there? Well, the Sabbath was not given to the Jews or just to Israel, right? It was given to everyone. It was given to everyone because it's good for everyone. What we have in this cycle created by God is a purposeful reason, and we'll talk about that in our text this morning. Now, in verses 1 through 5, we have Jesus declaring His authority in that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in verses 6 through 11, we have Jesus demonstrating his authority over the Sabbath. And if you were here last week, we ended chapter 5 with Jesus talking about patching old clothes, new wine, and old wineskins. And, and, and prior to those things, we talked about why, why people don't fast at weddings and that sort of thing. Chapter 5. And what Jesus was talking about there was, was taking all that old religious stuff, all that religious stuff that you kind of gained back then and, and you hold on to it and you don't want to let it go and then you hear this Jesus stuff and then you want to just patch on that new Jesus stuff onto this old stuff that you're just holding on to and you're not changing, you're not transforming at all. You just want to patch Jesus onto the stuff which is an impossibility because when Jesus touches you, He transforms you entirely. When He touches the leper, He transforms the leper entirely. When He transforms the paralytic, He transforms the paralytic entirely. It's not like, oh, you're bottom up, you're fine, bottom down, you can't, right? So the paralytic still has to crawl. He doesn't do that. He doesn't transform half of the leper so that only this half has to stay unclean and this half doesn't. He doesn't do that. He does the whole thing, right? So if, if you just patch it on, it just ruins both. You can't have old uh, wineskins, new wine. It ruins both. It ruins everything. So right after talking about that, here we are talking about the Sabbath. 
Now keep in mind that disciple, the disciples had a ball with Jesus. It's party time with Jesus, right? That, it's a wedding. It's a wedding feast. They don't fast. And, and while the Pharisees are just out there, prowling, trying to catch Jesus at doing something wrong, what a way to live. Right? Just walking around, trying to find something wrong in somebody else. And then, but, but you keep in mind how joyous these guys were with Jesus as we go into our text, because I think it kind of paints a picture for us, and it kind of paints this cool picture, because I envision, I envision these guys just having a ball with Jesus, playing with them, joking with them, uh, having a really great time. So when I read verse 1, this is what I get in my head, right? On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some grain, heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So if, for me, I just imagine these guys having a ton of fun and making spit wads out of grain and blowing them at each other or something like that, and, and just laughing and, and poking fun of each other and just grabbing a bunch of them and tossing them. I, I just imagine these guys laughing and talking and walking through and just having a grand old time with Jesus now, the background to this verse is in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So these guys aren't stealing. They're doing something that was allowed. right? So you can go ahead and eat it because it's neighborly to share, but you don't harvest your neighbor's crop. right? They don't grow it, and you're like, oh, let's, let's take all of this to the farmer's market and let's sell this stuff. But you're allowed to just kind of walk through and and eat along with it. Verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? These Pharisees are freaky to me because they're everywhere. All those, remember those first verses where we were, I mean, they're like ninjas. They just appear. They're in the middle of the field. Why are you, what what are you doing here? Right? Poof! Everywhere they go. And... Uh, where are they coming from? But always there, nothing positive to say, just punks, right? Just punky ninjas, just, just appearing. And so here they are confronting Jesus and his disciples about what is not lawful. And, and what's not, and when it isn't lawful, and just pointing all this stuff out, what the disciples were doing was, was lawful, right? We just read that in Deuteronomy, it's lawful. But the Pharisees weren't content with God's law. They had, they had to create a lot more. They, they created beyond the Bible. And they wanted to take it further, and they added to God's law. And the Pharisees had these uh, 39 work categories of, of things forbidden to do on the Sabbath. They exist now. It changes as technology changes and all this kind of stuff. But they change them as they go, and we're going to go through some of them. I'm going to share with you some of my favorites. And then further divided within those work categories are subcategories. And so they have these rule books on all this stuff. And on the Sabbath, one wasn't allowed to reap, thresh, winnow, or grind. And that's only four of these 39 categories, right? And the Pharisees took it a step further by by including in their rule books that that picking was equivalent to reaping. And and it was equivalent to threshing. And this rubbing of, of the husk from the grain was equivalent to winnowing and grinding. So that's against, that's against the Sabbath. You can't do that. And the Pharisees just made life burdensome, adding all these rules to God's already established law. These are extra things. It wasn't scriptural. They added to it. And that isn't something that is specific to the Pharisees because it happens throughout history. Right? It happens now in many Christian circles. 
right? There, there are people uh, in our church who probably put extra biblical rules on things, right? We also have people who are like the Pharisees in that they just appear like punky ninjas out of nowhere, just poof. Why are you doing that? And accusing people of doing things and continuously asking, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Leave me alone. You're freaking me out. How did you even show up here, right? And, and the Pharisees were distorting God's law. They were suggesting that God's wisdom just can't be fully trusted. Because God missed this part. We need to add this part. Right? They were taking over God's authority. Now are we guilty of this? As Christians, as a church, are we guilty of this? Are we guilty of adding our own things to God's laws, whether it is our cultural backgrounds, whether it's our family backgrounds, whatever causes us to feed into extra-biblical things? Are we saying that we're wiser than God? Are we saying that we're smarter than God beyond what He instructs us to do in His Word? Some of our stuff is just extra Right? Verses 3 through 5. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus challenges them with 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I won't go into detail of that because you can listen to it from iTunes. We just covered the First Samuel series uh, last year sometime. And what Jesus is inferring to is what is that if David and his gang didn't break the spirit of the Sabbath, then Jesus and his gang aren't in sin when they're eating this grain. And first of all, it's allowed, right? It's allowed according to Deuteronomy. But secondly, like David and his guys, the disciples were eating for their physical well-being. And Jesus is replying and referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 21 by, by putting it, by saying like, you need to put people before ceremony. You need to put people before ritual. There, there's no ceremonial, there's no ritualistic provision that comes before providing for people's essential necessities of life. You provide that first. That is the priority. So eating grain here, or, or as we will get to later, the healing of this withered hand comes before this other thing. And the Pharisee and some Christians today, they make life miserable. They make life miserable for people by, by making life difficult through these man-made traditions rather than abiding by God's law. And Jesus is protecting against the perversion of God's law. And I've heard people interpret the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I've heard different interpretations of that. But I've heard this interpretation as putting the Sabbath aside and, and that we're not bound to it. And I just don't agree with that statement. I don't agree with that interpretation. Jesus was not addressing the use of the Sabbath. Jesus was addressing the abuse of the Sabbath. Right? And Jesus was guarding the Sabbath because people like the Pharisees made it a burden on others rather than what God had planned for it since creation. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the use of the Sabbath. He came to correct the abuse of the Sabbath. And we move on to the second Sabbath confrontation because there's two of them within this chapter. It starts in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Luke records for us that it was the right hand, which is pretty significant. 
everything back then, it wasn't like now, they didn't create left-handed baseball gloves and all this kind of stuff. Everything was catered to a right-handed person. The right hand was thought to be the better hand. The right hand, if you didn't have that, you probably didn't work. The right hand is of really big significance. It, it, what, God, what Jesus is doing here is more than just curing this guy's physical state. He is giving dignity back to this man. That he can work again. That he can fit in again. Right For, for this man's well-being as a holistic human. It, and so it's just really difficult for this guy to function in that society. They didn't have all the social kind of support that we have now for various things, let alone being left-handed. Verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Poof! Again! I don't know where they come from. They're just always around. right? And here they are wanting to accuse. So, do we come to worship God or do we come to find something wrong? When we come to church, when we come to some church function or whatever it may be, are we coming for God or are we coming to point something wrong? And and I've I've had people come up to me right after a sermon and tell me how I've interpreted something wrong. And after working hard throughout the week researching and studying and looking back at notes taken in Bible classes that I took before and and talking to former um, Bible scholars that I, that I were, was able to sit under or former Bible professors for someone to come up to me and, and then say I don't think you interpret that, interpreted that right I'm not saying that I, I'm, I'm infallible I am open to being wrong what I'm questioning is the intent and the motivation behind that why did you come? did you come just to see what was going wrong in the church or did you come to worship God? That's what I'm questioning. I'm not saying that I'm right all the time. And is, is that the Bible that you're talking about, or is that an interpretation through your cultural lens as to why I interpret something differently than you? Is, is what you're saying extra-biblical? And the Pharisees didn't want to learn the Bible. They wanted to accuse the teacher of wrongdoing. They, didn't, they weren't concerned with the Bible. They were concerned with their extra-biblical stuff. Now, Jesus experiencing this gives me a ton of comfort. Because if God himself is questioned, who am I? Right? This is God himself and people are accusing. Are you kidding me? This is nuts. Right? And here we go. Verse 8. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Now, this is pretty fascinating. He knew their thoughts. Ooh. Right? Now, go back to Luke chapter 2, verses 34 through 35. Do you remember Simeon's prophecy? And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This was Simeon's prophecy. That's what was going to happen with Jesus. He's going to see the thoughts from many hearts. And that's what we're being told here in verse 8. He knew their thoughts. And he still does. He knows our thoughts. 
He knows the thoughts in our hearts. He knows who we really are. And he knew the, thought, thought, the heart, hearts and the thoughts of the Pharisees. And he knew the, the hearts of man with this, the guy with the withered hand. He knew this guy's thoughts as well. He knew that that man wanted his right hand restored. And I don't think that man with a withered hand wanted to be on center stage, though. I don't, I don't think he wanted that. Right? How, how many people want their physical deformity to be kind of be in the spotlight? How many people want that? Or why would Jesus want to shine the spotlight on this guy's physical disfiguration? Why would Jesus do that? Doesn't that seem kind of cruel? You can point, can't you just kind of do that and, and let the guy alone? And we read that this man is told by Jesus to come stand here. And the man does as Jesus instructs by rising and he stands there. And this guy seems pretty confident in Jesus. And I think the, the Pharisees were pretty confident as Jesus, in Jesus as well. I mean, they've seen all this stuff, right? They've seen the casting out of demons. They've seen the, the healing. They've seen all these different things. They're all over the place. So they've seen everything. So I think they're pretty confident that Jesus, what Jesus says gets done also. But they're just trying to lord over Jesus. Verse 9, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So in other words, is it right on the Sabbath to do good and save life as Jesus is about to do? Or is it right on the Sabbath to harm and destroy life as the Pharisees were intent on doing? Which is it? And everyone in the synagogue knew the answers except for probably the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew that healing was not only allowed on the Sabbath. The only reason why it would be allowed on the Sabbath is if it were life-threatening. Then you can address it. But these Pharisees, they love these kind of technicality things. They, they love these little things that they can catch you on. Right? So if this guy is going to die with that withered hand, then yes, you can save him. But if not, you know, he's, he's lived like that for a while. He doesn't have to be healed today. It's the Sabbath. So, so since he's not going to die, that's a clear violation of the letter of the law. Shame on you, Jesus. He's not going to die. He's been like this forever. Only life-threatening conditions are allowed to be treated on the Sabbath. Don't you touch that hand, Jesus. But Jesus was not into this type of legalism. This guy was right in front of Jesus with an opportunity to be healed. Right? And it would be sinful to leave him in that sad of a condition. If you could do something about it. And the Pharisees were all about putting up these barriers because of the law. And even to those who were in dire need, they were, they were willing to put up a barrier and say, like, oh, wait till tomorrow. And even to those who would benefit from getting healed right there and then, we don't do that. Today is the Sabbath. And this is just a terrible manipulation of the love of God. God didn't provide His laws to further burden people. It was intended to set people free. But how often does the church use it to oppress people? What was happening back in the days of the Pharisees is still alive. It's still thriving in today's church. Christians today are adding to God's Word, applying their own cultures, applying their own backgrounds, all this extra stuff to the Word of God, creating barriers that weren't meant to be there. So instead of addressing issues like shriveled hands, we're more concerned about what we've added to the Word of God and that we stick to those things that we've added. 
Are we creating a Sabbath that makes it more difficult for people to encounter God? Or are we honoring what the Lord intended to be a blessing for us? Where people don't have to go hungry and they can eat grain without feeling guilty about it. Where people don't have to go on living with these withered hands and that they could be healed from that. The Pharisees despised Jesus for going against their extra-scriptural ways. For all these things that they created, Jesus kind of cast them aside, and, and they were upset at that. It took a lot of hard work, a lot of, a lot of time to write those things up. You can't just disregard this stuff. And th- that was a problem for the Pharisees back then. It's a, it's a problem for the, the current Pharisees today of, of the current church, present-day church. And it's so difficult for Pharisees, no matter what period in history, to see people get free, to see people liberated. Verse 10, And after looking around at them, all he said, uh, he said to him, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Something interesting here. here. And after looking around at them all, why, why was Jesus looking around at them? I think he was giving them a chance to respond. I think Jesus was giving them this this opening to think about how they were thinking in light of what Jesus just shared with them. An opportunity to recognize where where they went astray from what God really intended. Just, Just the pause and let them think. But then there's no response. And instead of being humble recognizing that they were valuing their own created laws above God's law, they reacted. And they reacted with fury. And you notice that Jesus told the man to stretch out your hand. Which in most circumstances, this would seem like a cruel, heartless thing to ask of someone who obviously can't do that. Right? It, would, it, would be, it would seem mean knowing that someone who couldn't do something, you're challenging them to do something that they can't do. It just seems really cruel, especially in regards to a disability, that you're just pointing out something that is clearly not working and you're just doing that. But Because people have probably walked by this guy, right, sticking out their right hand, like a, maybe a group of teenage boys or something. Hey, shake my hand. Oh, you can't. Oh. Right? Or, or walking by like, hey, guys, watch this, watch this. Hey, Hi. Hi. Right? Ha ha ha. Look at he can't wave. Ha ha. Look at his shriveled hand. I mean, he, this guy probably faced some ridicule through his life. And now Jesus is saying, stretch out your hand. Jesus, that's messed up. Why don't you just heal the guy and then let him stretch out his hand? Why are you making him stretch out his hand? You know, all these things that this guy put up with his disability here, and then Jesus kind of does something that's kind of odd. Right? Jesus takes this guy, puts him on center stage, spotlights the shriveled hand, and then, and then Jesus told him to do this thing that he's incapable of doing. I mean, this is, this is messed up. Right? Think about that. Would you do that to somebody? And Jesus asked this man to do something that he was incapable of doing, and he did it. He did it. See, this is what Jesus asks of us as sinners. Right? He pulls you out, puts you on center stage. He spotlights this terrible thing in you. And then he says, accept me. It's all faith. 
And as you stretch out, He heals. It's, it's a simultaneous thing. It doesn't, it's not one before the other. It's not a chicken-egg thing. It's both. Right? It's, it's simultaneous. It, it, it happens at the same time. Jesus asks you to do something that you are incapable of doing. You cannot really confess your sins and, and heal yourself of, uh, or make yourself clean of sins and, and wash yourself whole. Jesus has to do that for you. You can't do that yourself. You can try, though. You can do it in faith. You can say that prayer in faith. You can accept Jesus in faith. And as you do that, simultaneously, He accepts that. Your sin is spotlighted. You are pulled to center stage to confess your sins, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus does for us as sinners. Right? This guy is completely incapable of stretching out his hand, and Jesus didn't say, just, just try harder. Try the best that you can. Just, just stretch it out there. Just do it. He doesn't do that. Jesus just said, stretch out your hand, something that this guy couldn't do. And so you see, the, the words of Jesus are not just life-changing. The, the, the words of Jesus are life-giving. He's given the dignity back to this man. Right? For, for this guy and his withered hand, and for us with, with our withered hearts, Jesus is saying to us, stretch out and get a hold of me. Right? Stretch, stretch out and, and reach out to me. And, and for all of us, we, we can't do it on our own, but, but in Him, we can. We, he, he is offering all of us, not just to change our life, but He's also offering us the gift of life. Right? A gift of life. And that's what... what, what that's what he gives this guy. He gives this guy his freedom back. He gives this guy his dignity back. He gives this guy his confidence back. But how do the Pharisees react? With fury. They don't rejoice, just like the paralytic. They don't rejoice that this guy can walk now. Right? They don't rejoice that this leper is no longer a leper anymore. They don't, they don't rejoice at, at, at this guy whose withered hand is cured. What's wrong with these guys? Verse 11, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Pharisees cannot share in joy. They can't do it. Rather than celebrating for, for something so wonderful that happened, they just want to conspire against Jesus. Where do we fall? Right? As a Pharisee or as one with Jesus? Are we guilty of being like a Pharisee here? That, or, because, you know, with Jesus, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality with Jesus, right? You, you either are or you are not. Kind of like pregnancy. You, you are or you aren't. It's not maybe, right? You either are or you're not. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, and he was confronted with this decision, right? And we know where he landed based on the letters he wrote, declaring his allegiance to Jesus. And one of these letters is in Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he wrote, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now Paul not only had his life radically changed, he was given the gift of life with Christ, right on that road to Damascus. Before Paul met Jesus... Life to him was all about Pharisaic laws. He kept every law. He was above the law. I mean, he, he was laws of all these with regulations and legalities and formalities. He knew it. He was by the book. But in meeting Jesus, 
his life drastically changed. He no longer lived by all those extra biblical laws. That is the type of impact Luke is writing to us about. All right, now, let's briefly talk about the observance of Sabbath, and this is where things kind of get rocky because people believe all sorts of things. And I, I guess I'll see by the emails and responses how, if you are in agreement with me or not. But first... Are you here to worship, or are you here to point out wrongs in me? So just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Okay, so, so this Sabbath thing, this Sabbath principle, does it apply to us today? Ooh. Right? Is there significance to the fourth commandment? I guess you already know where I stand. See, we know that the Pharisees added to the law of God, they added a lot to the law of God, right? They, they, there are lists of this stuff, and as I told you, they have lists of the stuff that are present now. Let me read some of them to you. Under work category 12, under shearing, this is a quote, it is biblically prohibited to pluck out two hairs or one hair if it is a white or gray hair from among dark ones in order to appear younger. Work category 24, under tearing. Tearing is a biblical prohib- prohibition if the tearing is for a useful purpose. Some examples of this prohibition are tearing off bathroom tissue. Work category 33, erasing. One should be careful when opening packages or seals not to cut where there are words. But if there is no other way to open it, then it is permissible to open the package by cutting a word in an unusual way, by using the opposite hand that he would normally use. For example, a righty should use his left hand. Work category 37, kindling a fire. Drinking from a cold water fountain becomes problematic when taking a long drink or filling a bottle with cold water because this may cause the cooling system to go on. Work category 38, extinguishing a fire. Some examples of this prohibition are closing the light switch. And a fire that will only threaten property may not be directly extinguished. An indirect method may be used, such as surrounding the fire with plastic water bottles. Work category 39, carrying. This is one of my favorite ones. One is permitted through a non-Jew to carry a child who can walk by himself if the child is not carrying any object that a grown-up would be forbidden to carry. If a non-Jew is not available and the child is running into the road, or even if the child is just hungry and he must be brought home for, but he refuses, it is then permitted to drag or carry him home. If he is carrying an object, the object should be dropped onto the street before dragging the child home. I like the dragging part, really. If the child is carrying an object that cannot be let to drop onto the street, then many sages are of the opinion that it is a biblical prohibition to carry the child, and consequently a non-Jew is forbidden to carry him, except in special circumstances, such as when the child is hungry or as explained before. It is, however, permitted to guide the child, providing that he walks himself and is not dragged. These are just a few out of many And if you go to Israel with us, as we sometimes do, you'll notice that on the Sabbath, the elevator stops on every floor because you can't push the button. And you can't take the stairs. So you wait for it to come down to every floor, and then you get in, and then you wait to go up every floor. 
And those bathroom tissues that we were talking about, that's all torn the day before. So you tear your bathroom tissues and you fold them and you just have like nice little piles on them because you can't tear. So they're all set for you, which I think is a great idea. Because I, I have three daughters and a wife. I don't know how many rolls of toilet paper. I would we'll put them like this, just there. It's like, woo! Like, why? Oh, holy moly! How many trees? Anyway. But those are just a few things. And another thing that they do is, is you can take five steps, and then you have to rest on the sixth. Now, if I'm in a hurry to get somewhere... I, I'd be like leaping five steps, like one, two, like doing the triple jump, and then, okay, boom. I'd be more tired than if I just walked, right? But anyway, this is, this is kind of like the extra stuff that we're talking about here, right? It's just extra stuff. And I think most of us would agree that, that these are on one extreme end of the Sabbath, Right? That, that's pretty extreme. But I also think that many of us tend to be on the other extreme, not observing the Sabbath at all. That's where I think a lot of us are. That there isn't any abiding part on the Sabbath. That there isn't any influence from the fourth commandment into our lives. And that the sanctity of this commandment is absolutely absent from our lives. We've gone that far. You laugh at folding toilet paper, you're like killing trees to make it and all this other stuff and rolling like big old mummy hands and stuff. It's just like some of us may even interpret the keeping of the Sabbath as pharisaical. Like, oh, if you look at that, that's just fair. That's just legalism. Like in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, right? The, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which people do interpret in all sorts of ways. People also use Luke chapter 6, verse 5. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, whom some interpret that as Jesus telling the Pharisees that it doesn't have to be observed anymore because, you know, I'm here and you don't have to worry about this stuff. In my opinion, and in many others' opinions, those aren't accurate interpretations. They might be your opinions, but I don't think that's accurate. Jesus was dealing with the abuses the Pharisees presented in how they practiced the Sabbath, not the use of the Sabbath that God established from the beginning in creation. The question is whether the fourth commandment is still a divine law like the other nine commandments, or did we just toss it out? Is it part of the Ten Commandments? Last time I read, it was. And some... Some believe that it is not. And if you believe that, the burden of proof is on you to prove that. Because everyone who reads the Ten Commandments sees that it's between number three and number five. It's there. It's right there. And none of, none of the other ones have been taken out. Why do we pull that one out? And I'm open to explanations. But I don't read it and I don't see it in the Bible with those explanations. Because it's there. It's right there. The fourth commandment is right there. And if we stick to what is right there in the Ten Commandments, it's not legalism. Because if it is, holding on to the other nine commandments is legalism as well, wouldn't you say? So, is honoring my father and mother, the fifth commandment, legalism? Is marital fidelity, the seventh commandment, is that legalism? Is complete honesty the ninth commandment? Is that legalism? Then is keeping the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, legalism? 
I don't think so. Now, why do we even raise this commandment as a possible legalism? I think it's because we've desensitized the sanctity that it calls for. And I also think that we've just swung far the other way because we've been bombarded with these other ways of thinking going too far the other way, all these extra biblical things that are added onto it. And so we've swung so far from what the Pharisees and others in our life have done, but I think we've gone too far. Just an utter disregard for the Sabbath entirely to where it's not a priority in our lives that we've just chucked, chucked the theology behind it and we've put convenience in its place. We have all these things on Sundays now, you know, football and all these other things. Let's not just go get in, get in the way. So instead of our lives being captive to the law of God, we've been captivated by our culture, by all these things that are around us. And rather than being led through by abiding to the law of God, we are, we are moved more by the culture that is around us, by the society that is around us. How many of us observe the Sabbath at all? And if we do, is it, a, is it a matter of custom or is it a matter of conviction? Because they're very different, different. If this commandment has never reached the level of conviction for you and it's only customary, then you're easily swayed. You can change just by whatever. A new job or whatever, anything that comes up. And there have been a couple passages that have been wrongly interpreted in regards to the Sabbath that people throw in all the time. For example, Romans chapter 14, verse 5, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, 16. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. See, Paul, Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? Paul just wrote, uh, was just writing about abiding in the law in all the previous chapters of Romans. Romans 1 through 13. He's writing, he's writing about abiding in the law. Do we really think that once he gets to chapter 14, verse 5, he sets, a light, sets aside the law? When he's used that whole thing to establish it? That once he gets there, oh, this part, oh, yeah, we, we'll just set that aside. That doesn't count anymore. And in those two verses, Paul is not dealing with the moral dimensions there. It is moral law. But rather he's dealing with ceremonial dimensions or or these man-made days, these additions to the law. That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with these alternative Sabbaths. He's not putting aside the Sabbath. He's not saying it doesn't exist anymore. Right? He's not doing that. So So how did we get from the Sabbath on the seventh day to Sunday, the first day? Right? This is a problem that Seventh-day Adventists have. And um, I have some friends that are there that believe that I am, I'm sinning because I'm, I take a Sabbath on a different day. And some of you have family and friends that are very, very much stuck to this and they honor this. How did the change from the seventh day to the first day occur? How did that happen? Well, it comes about like many other things in the Bible that and the Bible doesn't talk about, like the Trinity. You're not going to find the Trinity in the Bible. Right? It's not like we can turn and, and say, oh, this, there's the Greek word for Trinity. Like it's not there, right? But, but rather it's this unfolding of God's revelation through the Bible to, for us to come to a conclusion that God is, is one God in three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. It's in the Scripture, but there's nothing in there that says Trinity. 
And so apart from Paul's use and evangelism of, of the Jewish synagogue uh, worship, Luke chapter 23, verse 56, is the last reference to Christians keeping the Jewish Sabbath. It's the last one. Luke chapter 23, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That is the last time that it's recorded that Christians keep the Jewish Sabbath. Moving on from that point, we find that the early Christians chose the first day of the week as their day to meet and to worship God. They changed it. It's throughout the Bible. You look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And then John writes in the book of Revelation while he's on the island of Patmos. He writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, first day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John was referring to the Lord's day, which was the first day as all the Christians would understand when they read John's letter. Why the change in day? Because early Christians wanted to dif differentiate themselves from the Jewish ways of worship. Right? In reading the New Testament, it's clear that the disciples, the apostles, or any of the followers of Jesus, they wanted to create a, a, a separate thing. Right? They didn't want this Jewish-Christian hybrid religion. They didn't want that. They knew that once they got transformed, they are a new creation. They are not Jewish. That doesn't mean that they forget those Jewish roots and they don't believe in the Old Testament and all that stuff. It's just Jesus has come. I'm, I'm, I'm different. Jesus came and transformed my life. Paul was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, and his life was totally transformed. He was completely liberated from being a Pharisee. He didn't follow all those extra work category things anymore. There was no desire for him to combine Judaism and Christianity. You don't read that in the Bible. Paul doesn't do that. He is very distinct. And the Council of Jerusalem actually... Acts chapter 15, same thing. They address this. It's very distinct. They are not trying to combine these things. Why the first day of the week? Because some really awesome things happened on that day. Really, really awesome. The Holy Spirit was poured out on that day. Jesus Christ raised from the dead on that day. The early Christians celebrated Jesus' resurrection without neglecting the original intent of the Sabbath. Now some would argue whether Sunday was to replace Saturday because this Sunday stuff didn't just come into play until the 4th century by Constantine, right? That didn't happen until Constantine did that in 4th century. You're just making all this stuff up. And this is what Constantine said in 321 AD. On the venerable day of the sun, sun, S-U-N, because it's a pagan thing, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. So some would argue, yeah, that's a pagan thing because it wasn't sun, S-O-N. He said S-U-N. It's a pagan thing. But why did Constantine do this? Why was he able to legislate this? Because the, the only reason Constantine was able to legislate that, um, that was because there was this 300 years of development where the early Christians were already worshiping on the first day of the week. They were already doing it. 
Right? So he didn't just institute it and poof, it happened. Oh, everyone worships on the first day. It was already happening. They were already doing this. It was already something that the early Christians were using as their Sabbath day. And so it was just seamless legislation. It made sense. Uh, might as well. They're already doing it. And so the Christian Sunday took over the, the place of this Jewish Sabbath. And you read more about it in Christian history, if you like. There's books about this stuff. You can read about it. There's some recommendations I can make. But if you look at all the early Christian fathers, right? Origen, Melito of Sardis, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Cyril of Alexandria, Ambrose, Ephraim the Syrian, all the early church fathers would agree with Eusebius' statement. Eusebius said, Jesus Christ has translated and transferred the feast of the Sabbath to the morning light and gave us the symbol of the true rest, the Lord's day. So how are we to think of the use of the Lord's day? Well, Jesus didn't come to cancel the use of the Sabbath. Right? He came to correct the abuse of the Sabbath. He didn't chuck the Sabbath out. So let us be open to discussing and considering this matter in our lives. Because I think a lot of us have actually gone the other way. Let's not just ignore it as a legalistic thing because it, it is the fourth commandment. It's in between number three and number five. It's there. So we have to address this. And the Sabbath principle is important for us to consider. God is more interested in our enjoyment of His blessing. The Sabbath is a blessing. It's not a burden. right? He's, he's, he's interested in our joy of His blessing through obedience more so than He is of your self-inflicted deprivations of your life. And so I apologize to you if, if you were expecting me to give you uh, the 39 work categories and all the subdivisions and, and what to do and what not to do. Um, I would like to do that because I find it entertaining, but I'm not going to. I'm not even going to give you a day. I'm not even going to do... I, I, I want you to read this stuff. I want you to get conviction, not just a custom from our church that I'm just preaching about. And here, this is it. Okay, he said it, so that's it. Get some conviction. Read on it. Study it. Let us be bound to Jesus. Not to what somebody preaches. Not to some systematic theology. Let's be bound to Jesus. Let us be bound to His Word. Let us be loyal to the cross. Jesus Christ has the only right to be our Master. Right? He's the only one to tell us which day is on the Sabbath. It's there. You can read it. So how do we take this issue of the Sabbath seriously without becoming a Pharisee and judging others? How do we do that? How do we go about holding on to our conviction, which you're going to have to dig for yourself? How do you hold on to that conviction about the Lord's Day without becoming self-righteous? And telling people, oh, that's a violation. And, oh, oh yeah, I'm popping out of the cornfield to tell you. And it, it took more than five steps to get there. there. But I'm going to tell you that it's bad for you to do this to husks. The goal of the Lord's day is God. It's Jesus. That's the goal of the day. It's not about church attendance or, or all these other things. right? The, the goal of the Sabbath day is God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for this blessing of a Sabbath. We pray, Lord, for the forgiveness if we have not observed it in our life. 
And oftentimes it's just confusing. And we pray, Lord, that as we research ourselves, as we read ourselves, as we pray, as we talk to people and discuss these issues, that you would be there revealing to us what you desire from us. In Jesus' name, amen.